Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Carrie Gillespie-Smith is a developmental psychologist working as a lecturer in clinical psychology at the University of Edinburgh. Her research is interested in linking neurocognitive mechanisms and social cognitive processes to mental health outcomes in neurodiverse groups, autism, intellectual disabilities, adverse childhood experiences. To better understand these processes, she's also interested in the role other variables play, such as parenting styles, coping trauma, and how these factors may contribute to mental health outcomes in neurodiverse groups. You're very welcome, Carrie. Thank you for having me, Cathy. It's lovely to be here. And we're very excited because I know your work is very broad and we will certainly have you back to talk about it in greater depth. But today we're talking about a very specific study that you've done called Having to Jump Off a Bridge for Help, Parent and Stakeholder Perspectives of What Continues to Impact Children with Intellectual Disabilities and Their Families Across the UK. Yeah, so that's linked to our UKRI and ESRC funded project called Road to Recovery Project, which is trying to capture the voices of parents and children with intellectual disabilities, their experiences of COVID and the recovery phases as we transition back to some form of normality. And my understanding is that this very important study, you surveyed parents of children, both with intellectual disabilities and without, to compare the impacts of the pandemic and lockdown on families. Yeah, so to try and get an understanding of the parents coping, how they were coping during this, the parents' levels of anxiety and stress, as well as some measurement of the child's stress or anxiety And we try and measure that with measuring challenging behaviours. Sometimes that's kind of reported in a negative way, but we try and say, you know, this isn't a negative behaviour in any way. It's just the child showing that they're in some form of distress, that they are stressed or they are anxious. So we tried measuring that as well. So Carrie, let's rewind a little bit. Tell us how you would define intellectual difficulties for people listening. So intellectual difficulties is when we think about kind of deficits in intellectual functioning. So reasoning, problem solving, planning, academic learning. We have different categories of intellectual disabilities. So we have mild, moderate, severe and profound. And years ago, there used to be a real focus on IQ levels to kind of categorise children or adults into these kind of categories but now there's more focus on the adaptive ability so how how well they're able to live independently so if they're mild for instance this means that that they can live independently with very minimum levels of support but if they're kind of noted to have profound intellectual disability then that means they require 24-hour care And Carrie, can you tell us the context of this study? Were you asked to do it? Did you initiate it off your own bat? You know, how did it come to fruition? 
So I've worked with parents of mostly autistic children and sometimes these children didn't have intellectual disability but some kids did have intellectual disability and during COVID I just kept thinking about the families that I've worked with for many years and just I thought I'm going through this as a parent what are they going through so I started doing some pilot data during 2020 during the first lockdown and then I used that to argue the case to get some funding to continue to monitor the parents as we transitioned back to to a kind of normal state of, of functioning again within society but try and monitor them and and see how they're getting on and and how this has impacted their mental health and their child's mental health and I know certainly anecdotally there have been so many headlines about this issue mm-hmm. and I think it was difficult for everyone I think being at home with children but I think the hypothesis was so many children had lost support networks that were both valuable to them as individuals and to the wider family. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your methodology. How did you uh, explore it? Was it survey? Was it presumably, you know, tell us a little bit about that sample that you dipped into. Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, so initially we have carried out surveys and we've done that at two time points. So the first one was between July and November early December and then we've continued following these families up for the, between February and March just to see how things are doing as the lockdown reduces the, these kind of restriction levels. So we've done that in a survey but we, we've also got this photo voice method that we're using to capture the children's own voices because I'm sure you'll, you'll know Kathy that the media and the research so far is only limited to the parent reports and it's really important that we capture the children's voices themselves, their own perceptions or experiences during COVID and the transition back. And, and so to do this, we use photo voice, which is them taking images or creating images that represent experiences during COVID and throughout recovery phases and get them to kind of create their own narrative about that using images. And what age range of children were involved in the study? So we've tried to cover from five years old up until 18. I think so far in the photo voice, we've not managed to get really young ones. So they're kind of starting from about nine, ten, and going up to about 17, 18. And tell us what the main findings were. So we're still in the middle of doing our photo voice and I would love to come back on and and kind of tell you the findings of that one because that's the one I'm most excited about. And while we're doing that, we're also interviewing parents of children who have profound intellectual disabilities because obviously they're not able to take part in the photo voice, but we still want to try and represent them in the study. So we're still doing that phase of the study. We've collected our first time one of our survey and we're just now analysing that and so far we found significant differences in our parents of children with intellectual disabilities. They've got higher levels of anxiety, stress, depression compared to parents of children who are typically developing. So is it true that you find that 59% of your parents' sample were experiencing mild to moderate symptoms of depression? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm which is extremely high, I would imagine. Yep. It sounds like a silly question, but what were the main triggers for that depression as far as the parents were able to tell their own story? 
So yeah, I think there was a few things. What we've also measured in conjunction with the parents' mental health is levels of challenging behaviours that their child's showing. And again, that's just us interpreting that as the child's stress. So we know that when the child's more stressed, we see that then increased levels of anxiety, stress and depression in the parents. And we also see that certain coping strategies, if we see that more used in parents, so we see higher levels of self-blame in our parents of children with intellectual disabilities, which is obviously everything that happened with COVID was out with their control. However, they seem to be coping or using this coping strategy more so than parents of kids who are typically developing. And we're now doing analysis to see if these coping strategies predict how likely they are to have these poor mental health outcomes. Now, tell us about the reduction. I think your support noticed reduction in support services for children with intellectual disabilities and that that was still even the case now that we're out of lockdown. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's unbelievable. So there seems to be a bit of a postcode lottery still going on, I think, and, and how with parents having to fight to get the respite and services reinstated after COVID. So a couple of parents have even mentioned to us that local services, when they went to try and get this reinstated, almost said to them, well, you know, you've coped during COVID, so do you really need these services? And so it's really worth saying, you know, these parents and families didn't cope during COVID. They just barely survived. You know, so for them to have to now fight to get these things reinstated that they already had is just unbelievable. It's really frustrating. Carrie, tell us about transition back to school. I mean, from my own experience and practice, you know, transition has been very difficult for lots of Mm -hmm. children. Tell us what your sample sort of revealed. So, yeah, likewise, And as you say, Kathy, you know, typically developing kids are showing this as well, but we see this manifested even more so to more extremes in our our children with intellectual disabilities. So we know that they're displaying higher levels of anxiety transitioning back to school and that teachers are also reporting that parents are more stressed as well because they're worried that their, their children are continuing to fall behind. So they're really keen for them to go back to school. So there's that kind of pressure as well. And this is completely understandable because for some of these parents, their kids weren't able to engage in learning at all because they couldn't use the learning platforms. So I think they're going to school. Parents are hoping they'll catch up. Teachers have this pressure to deliver this academic learning. But at the same time, they're, they're having to deal with kids who have a high anxiety and stress because for two years they've been told the outside was dangerous or scary and they couldn't go to school because of a risk and now they're they're expected to go back to school. So we're seeing really higher levels of anxiety and stress in our, our young people with intellectual disabilities. So Carrie, I've been asked this quite a lot by parents over recent months. If a child is exhibiting signs of anxiety and and refusing to go to school... What's your advice as a psychologist? You know, it seems so counterintuitive for a parent to make a very anxious child go to school every morning. I mean, I've met parents who've had children hiding under the bed, holding onto the car door, like very, very difficult and stressful transitions. What's your best advice in that regard? Yeah, I think that is an an important question. And I think it's a complicated question, isn't it? Because I feel like 
after this, parents have a better understanding of what teachers do in their job because parents had to get so engaged in, in the learning environment. And likewise, when we've done our roundtable events, teachers have said how they feel as though there's a much more open conversation with parents around trying to get their young people back to school, you know, safely and in, in, in a way that's not going to impact their mental health. So I think that's really great, you know, that parents and, and teachers are really working together to think about what's best for each child. And each child is a really individual. So I don't think there will be one answer to suit all by any means. But what I do think is that what's important is to to deal with, and I completely agree with you, Cathy, that young people, we need to deal with their mental health. We need to deal with their anxiety and their stress. They're not going to learn anything if the whole time they're just super hyped up and, and, and very anxious. And so I think the, the best thing is to just take our time with the kids and try little by little what they're comfortable with, what the parents think is working, what the teachers think is working, and get the children understanding or remembering that school's a nice place to be again, that it's fun, that that's where they can go and see their friends, that it's not a scary place. So I think that's really important to try and focus on that just now and not so much this pressure about getting them to catch up academically. Let's get them back in school and feeling happy again to be there. Let's focus on that. I think it's really important. And Carrie, you can imagine it's so tempting for parents of children who are very, very comfortable being at home, doing their online learning. You know, yeah. <laughs> children are saying, well, why should I go back? I'm perfectly happy here and I'm doing all my homework. So for some children, the pandemic afforded a sort of a reprieve from school life. Yes, definitely. And that's such a good point because I do want to say that we have heard some really positive stories, actually. And especially with autistic kids who may have uh, some intellectual disabilities as well, the whole social anxiety of going into school and issues with bullying. So this moving to being at home and having this online platform instead has really worked for some children. And again, I think that's that's why I think each parent, we have to have this open dialogue between parents and teachers so they can talk about this and, and really think, you know, what suits these kids individually because we need to move away from this one thing fits all approach because it's not the case at all. And Carrie, tell us a little bit, what was the impact, if any, of the pandemic and lockdown on neurotypical siblings of children with intellectual disabilities? So yeah, do you know, I think that's a really interesting question. And if I had more time and more money, <laughs> I would have loved to have asked siblings about their experiences as well. We do know from parent reports that parents feel very guilty around neurotypical siblings because they feel like they weren't able to spend as much time with them during lockdown as they maybe had to do with the child with intellectual disability. And that sometimes the siblings even had to do some caring responsibilities during lockdown as well to help their mums who are maybe working at the same time as looking after the child with intellectual disability as well as looking after the neurotypical child. So they had to do some caring responsibilities as well as maybe keep up with their own school work or college work. And as well, sometimes parents were reporting to us that the neurotypical sibling would help the child with intellectual disability with their homework or, or school work as well. So there was a bit more pressure put on neurotypical siblings during COVID as well. I think some of them I've heard anecdotally were worried about 
their family, you know, going back to school, having been a carer, you know, sometimes they can worry about the people that are left behind at home as well. It's been a difficult transition emotionally. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I've, I've done some sibling research in the past and they always have these huge levels of empathy and consideration of their sibling with intellectual disability and they're always on their mind. So I could imagine that, that siblings, they would have struggled more during the pandemic and they'll be struggling more as we transition back as well. So I think that this is a really good point you're raising. It's not just parents or the child with intellectual disability themselves, but it's even the wider family as well we have to be aware of and helping. Now, Carrie, you've mentioned the importance of homeschool partnership when we're talking about supporting young people with intellectual difficulties. What are the things that you wished teachers knew, you know, from all of your work and your research? What is it that you would like schools to appreciate and know about this population of children? Do you know, I feel like for this, whenever I meet teachers from your residential schools or your schools with specialist units attached, they never fail to kind of blow my mind what their intuition with these kids that they work with and they're so passionate with them. And so on some level, I think the teachers always have a really good sense of their kids, you know, because because in their mind, these are their, their then when you talk to them, they're always saying, oh, my kids, my kids, <laughs> because they are really invested in them. They're, they're really passionate about supporting them. and. When you're talking to, to teachers, they have this great insight into how sometimes to deal with the children's anxiety and getting back to school. And we did have one teacher who said, you know, I know my parents are wanting me to work on their academic ability, but I just want to get these children back in the class and, you know, remembering that, that we're nice people and that it's nice to be in the class and it's nice to see their friends because for some of them, this is the only way they see other kids just now. And I think that's really nice that teachers aren't only being aware of the academic aspects, but also the social aspects, which is still important for these children with intellectual disabilities. Now, Carrie, you commented that some children with intellectual disabilities experienced COVID as a trauma and need trauma-informed practice to help. Tell us what that means in practice for schools and how they could possibly implement it. So I think for schools, most of them are already kind of doing this so it's, it's not it's just from speaking to these excellent teachers who really care about the kids and have a good sense of, of what's going on with them but when the children are coming into school and they're showing anxiety or stress behaviors then it's just being aware that of where these behaviors come from so just knowing that it's coming from a place of, of anxiety and increased arousal and that the, the children can't help but show these behaviors so it's a bit about awareness and also about the teacher's approach to the child as well and maybe having this approach of looking at the child as a whole not just starting to hammer down the academic stuff that the children need to do but also have the child thinking or reflecting on their feelings or emotions about being back in school and spend a wee bit of time in the classroom going over that having the kids report how they're feeling their emotions what what they're worried about that day or what they're looking forward to doing so it's a bit about even putting that into practice and sometimes even for trauma-informed classrooms it can be the design of the physical classroom certain lighting Colours in the wall can be calming, have a calming effect on the child to try and keep them calm. 
and also having what you tend to find anyway in, in most residential schools or, or specialist schools is these kind of sensory areas or these kind of quiet corners where the child can put themselves if they're feeling like they're too stimulated. So it's, it's small things like that that already I think schools are very aware of and, and most are, are implementing. And what would you like to see changing in policy in the post-COVID world? What well, Certainly we must be able to learn something from the experience of lockdown and how these children have experienced all sorts of challenges at home. What is it that you would love to see in terms of policy change? I would like to see more having the parents themselves and the, the child at the centre of most policy decisions. And because, as I say, this is what's passionate, that, that I'm passionate about trying to capture the kids' voices themselves, because so many times decisions are made about them and, and almost treating them like passive vessels when they're not, they're, they're active. They've, they have their own perceptions of what happened. They had their own experiences and those are just as valid as their parents. So it's about using that to also inform decision-making. I think that's really important. Also, I think we need to see some changes in how these parents and the children with intellectual disability and their siblings and wider family, how they get access to help with their mental health support. Just now, even getting the child with intellectual disability to be seen in some CAM services, they have to meet a really strict criteria. And these kids don't always meet it because, for instance, if they have complex motor disabilities as well, then they're not able to show the the levels of self-injury that CAMS requires them to have before they'll see them as an emergency. So there's a real issue, I think, around strict criteria and how it's used for these families to get access to mental health support. And we need to be looking at that and changing that. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me, Carrie. And we look forward to having you back in Up to talk about the progress of some of the studies that you've mentioned today. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me, Cathy. It was really lovely to talk to you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.